Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, a U.S. Army Combined Arms Center podcast on emerging doctrine and the Army's vision of warfare. Hello, I'm Captain Wyatt Harper, and welcome to another episode of Breaking Doctrine. With the newest version of FM30 Operations set to publish this year, we've produced several episodes of Breaking Doctrine that address lessons learned, challenges, and years of conceptual discussion that have supported this revision and the Army's pending shift from unified land operations to multi-domain operations as our operational concept. A former commander of the Training and Doctrine Command, or TRADOC, General Don Starry once wrote, about the relationship between concepts and doctrine. Specifically, how for a concept to be formulated, there ought to be three general reasons or rules for developing a new concept. One, a recognition of a problem for which no doctrine exists. Two, recognition or assignment of a mission for which no doctrine exists. And three, new or an improved technology having military application not yet exploited. Those producing and those that are patiently waiting for the new FM-30 probably are thinking about Russian new generation warfare right about now. But today we're going back to the late 1970s and early 1980s. The 1973 Yom Kippur War produced a variety of new problems. We'll talk about those today. But at that time, there wasn't any doctrine to address these new challenges. And that brings us to today's topic, the origins and evolution of Army Air Land Battle Doctrine. Joining me today is Lieutenant General Retired Leonard D. Holder, former commander of the Combined Arms Center, former commandant of the United States Army Command and General Staff College, and the Army's lead for the development of the 1986 version of FM 100-5 operations. He commanded 2nd ACR while under 7th Corps and led them during Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm, playing a vital role in that operation, which resulted in the unit earning the Valorous Unit Award. He went on to command 3rd ID, and he supported UN peacekeeping operations in Croatia and Macedonia, and even conducted the first training missions with the armies of both Russia and Ukraine. We're also joined by Mr. Jim Ben, Deputy Director of the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate, or CAD. Mr. Ben served for 25 years as an aviation officer in the Army. He served as a platoon leader, battery commander, operations officer, company commander, Director of Logistics and Deputy Brigade Commander throughout his tours in Germany and South Korea. He also served as an aviation officer under 7th Corps during Operation Desert Storm. Finally, rounding out our discussion panel is Dr. Mark Gerges, the Deputy Director of the Department of Military History at the Army University. Dr. Gerges, also Lieutenant Colonel Retired Gerges, served as an armor officer throughout his career, serving in armor and headquarters units in Europe and in the Middle East specifically as a tank company commander during Operation Desert Storm, while in the 1st Armored Division, also under 7th Corps. So today we're going to discuss the history and evolution of operational level doctrine, uh, specifically the introduction of the airland battle as the Army's operational concept. As we often do, we'll start off with the actual Army doctrine. And to do that, I'll turn to Mr. Ben. Sir, what is an operational concept? Yes, thank you. Um, We have most recently defined uh, the Army's operational concept as the fundamental statement that frames how the Army, uh, operating as part of the joint force, uh, conducts operation. Now, that uh, phrase, uh, operating as part of the joint force, is a relatively recent addition Uh, to our definition of operational concept. But uh, basically, the the operational concept is the Army's philosophy on how it conducts operations. Now, sir, can you define airland battle? Uh, The airland battle doctrine takes a nonlinear view of battle. It enlarges the battlefield area, stressing uh, air and ground operations throughout the theater. It distinguishes the operational level of war uh, involving the conduct of campaigns and large unit actions uh, down to the tactical level. 
Erland Battle recognized the non-quantifiable elements of combat power, especially maneuver, which is as important as firepower. It acknowledges the, the, the uh, importance of nuclear and chemical weapons and electronic warfare. Today, we tend to uh, treat those things as new ideas, but it actually, they actually were prominent features of our airland battle doctrine. Okay, most important, uh, the airland battle doctrine emphasized uh, that uh, well-trained, highly motivated uh, soldiers and skillful and effective leaders were critical to success in battle. General Holder, do you have something, sir? Yeah, that's the essence of it. That's well put. Um, really, the change from active defense to airland battle started with the 1982 version of FM 100-5. That's where the term airland battle was introduced, and all the factors that Jim mentioned were included in that manual as well. The 82 version superseded a 1976 publication of 100-5, which has come down to us as active defense, and which took a lot of the standard emphases off of uh, things like maneuver, the moral element of war, and certainly the uh, operation of the uh, offensive. The 1976 version of 100-5 took its lessons from the 1973 Arab-Israeli War and concluded that uh, the modern battlefield was going to be exceptionally lethal and that the advantages all lay with the defender. And in expressing that doctrine, particularly in the, in the manuals that implemented 100-5, the Army adopted a more passive and defensive-oriented uh, posture than it had before. A lot of soldier, soldiers resisted that. And so when TRADOC formed and General Depew decided to uh, uh, revise doctrine, he put that in place and found that he had uh, started a long conversation and a pretty energetic conversation about what should be the Army doctrine. And about half the officer corps believed that it should uh, emphasize the thing Mr. Benz already talked about, maneuver, moral elements, battle in depth, use of the offensive. And those, along with the operational level of war, uh, became really the trademarks or hallmarks of airland battle. Airland battle was rearticulated in 86 to make our treatment of the operational level of war more complete and better. And sir, can I ask a question of you, this is Mark Gerges. The operational level of war comes into our U.S. doctrine at this time with the 82 edition, doesn't it? That's correct. It was the first time we had made that formal distinction. The U.S. Army was pretty good in World War II about large unit operations and about the conduct of campaigns, but we never codified that as a separate area of study. So in 1982, and I remember it was General Starr's Deputy Chief of Staff for Doctrine, General Morelli, who insisted that we include the operational level of war in, in the manual. Sir, you mentioned the 1973 Arab-Israeli War. We were in the middle of the Cold War, so we had a strong Soviet presence in Europe. This is a realization that our doctrine needed to change, was it not? Yes, it was. The outcome of that war was uh, considered amazing at the time, but, but the way it was fought, especially in the Golan Heights, was particularly bloody and, uh, and tough, and it was a very close-run fight up there, but uh, U.S. observers of that operation were deeply impressed with the lethality of that battlefield and the, and the advantages that the defender would have in that kind of warfare. And so they extrapolated from what they'd seen there to Europe where the Warsaw Pact threat was growing and where we were beginning to take operations uh, more seriously again after, after the Vietnam years. Dr. Gerges, as a historian, what are your thoughts on this? I was just going to say one of the, the, the things is when they looked at the casualty rates in the first six days of the 73 war, uh, more tanks were killed on both sides than the U.S. had in Europe uh, at that time period. So a wake-up call of, of the lethality uh, that was going to be there. Yeah, but the active defense solution really uh, ran counter to a lot of U.S. instincts, which were that you win through maneuver and that the uh, motivation of your soldiers is as important as your weapons. Uh, so the way in which the 76 doctrine was applied in Europe uh, came up short in the opinion of a lot of professional soldiers. It was extremely reactive, it did not put any emphasis on counterattacks, and it didn't solve the question of how to handle oncoming Soviet echelons in depth. 
you might win the, in fact, in exercises we repeatedly won the first few battles of, a, uh, of an engagement set in Central Europe. But when U.S. forces had exhausted themselves, NATO forces had exhausted themselves, uh, the Russians and the Warsaw Pact still had more forces to be committed. In the doctrine, this is where we really see the importance of depth come into play, right? It is. And it's important, I think, to, to recollect that General Don Starry had been the Armor Center commander under General Depew, and in 1976 had helped write the active defense doctrine. After that, he became the fifth corps commander in Europe. He saw a few of the assimilations play out and examined his own tactical situation and the disadvantage that he'd be in with respect to Soviet uh, forces in depth. And he was the guy who said, no, we've got to do something about this. We've got to be able to fight in depth. We've got to win a second series of battles too. So I admired the way General Starry was able to uh, turn from his first opinion and go on to change the doctrine to something that was uh, going to be more useful in the central region. Gentlemen, how was active defense received? Well, first off, I, I have to admit up front, I was not, I came on board the Army in 84, so airland battle was already a thing, but we can talk later on about how it shifted as we started to understand the doctrine and how it gets refined at 86. I mean, one of the things, and I'm coming from this as a historian, we teach a lesson at Commander General Staff College um, from the end of the Vietnam War through the Desert Storm. So really it's rebuilding a broken army. And one of the things is that active defense has a very European focus. And it's all about that central front um, type of thing. And that 82 edition looks at jungle warfare and it looks at desert warfare and it looks at Arctic warfare. And it has sections on, little sections acknowledging that, that it's not just defending there, that it's a more uh, comprehensive uh, piece and it's not just for mechanized forces in Europe. My experience was that uh, the active defense had strategic implications because it shaped almost everything we did. When I came in the Army long before uh, uh, you, <laughs> Mark, uh, when I came in the Army, the capstone event, I think, for the Army was an event called Reforger. It was the return of forces to Germany, and that was the litmus test of our strategic approach for the defense of Western Europe, I, I, I think. But, but the Reforger exercise uh, sort of reflected that mindset of defend as well as you can until reinforcements arrive. And so uh, that, that strategic approach mindset, I think, was reflective of our active defense uh, operational concept. It was, and it's interesting to me that the umpire rules reflected the doctrine. That is, the losses you were assessed as a player in reforger exercises were all based on the assumptions and prescriptions of active defense. So it was sort of a self-proving uh, operation, if you will. I was a, a staff college student in those years. I graduated staff college in uh, 1977 and active defense was being taught at the college at that time. And um, FM 100-5 was being implemented uh, in very strange ways that at the subordinate uh, level manuals, the infantry and armor manuals, the artillery manuals, uh, took a lot of license with the basic concept and made it almost an accounting drill, uh, a business of, uh, of ratios and odds and how, how many tanks a quarter would carry vice, how many anti-tank systems you had to array in front of it to stop that. Uh, and I remember great dis dissatisfaction among my classmates being given what looked like accounting tables to fill out with uh, the numbers involved to design your defense on those mathematical terms. So this sounds like an approach that former Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara would take. I mean, we saw during Vietnam that battlefield statistics were emphasized. Do you think that played a part in active defense? Yeah, that's a fair observation. I mean, the, the officer corps had been trained in those, in those values and those appreciations at that time. I mean, the term is usually the battle calculus, and they actually have charts um, in the, the, the uh, active defense that shows uh, a stationary M60 uh, firing at a T-62, and it has all these charts of how what your percentage is um, based on whether you're moving stationary um, and its probability of hit and probability of uh, penetration. 
and there was almost no attack that you could defend under, or sorry, no attack that you could design under those conditions that was to succeed because so many advantages were ascribed to the defender that if you got out and moved in the open, you, you were going to fail just by the math. Sir, can you talk about the perceived elimination of the tactical reserve? Was that a point of debate back then? It was. The doctrine taught that commanders should hold very small reserves, that they should thicken their defenses where the attack was most likely, and they should move uncommitted forces and flanking forces to the nose of the attack to establish more favorable ratios. So they did not, by doctrine, hold large reserves. Mr. Ben, what are your thoughts? You know, what was, uh, uh, as you mentioned, I think, uh, what was so uh, interesting about the active defense is it was counter to the American way, as it were. You know, every historical example that we would probably mention was the offense was always the decisive, you know, element of combat. So active defense was, uh, in my mind, a, a somewhat of a departure from just our innate American thinking uh, when it comes to warfare. How did NATO respond? What I remember about NATO is that they accepted active defense without too much discussion. In fact, foreign officers you know, came to Leavenworth to study and participated in our exercises, and it was not highly controversial, but it was American doctrine. When we changed to airland battle doctrine, NATO was emphatic in saying this is not NATO doctrine, this is American doctrine, and uh, they came up with an alternative of their own. There were some member states of NATO that did not go along with uh, deep attack, that is attacking Warsaw Pact forces over the border or even going on the offensive into what had been Warsaw Pact territory. A lot of members were very uncomfortable with that. And uh, General Rogers, the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, was very clear that this was American doctrine, not NATO doctrine, and he came up with a forward uh, attack of follow-on forces concept, which was similar but more acceptable to the Europeans. Dr. Gerges, can you describe the concept of central battle? You mentioned battle calculus. As, as we shift to that, one of the things I want to point out with the active defense, that the thought or the concern was that if we lose, we, we can win that first initial fight, we can't then the follow-on forces, which is going to leave the United States at the national level to make a decision about nuclear weapons, their first use. Um, and airland battles going to give the opportunity to, to win the second and third order fight to kind of lessen or, or I guess raise that threshold. And so that was one of the, the, the advantages uh, seen. So in the 1982 version of FM 100-5, this is when we begin to see the extension of the battlefield, the second echelon, correct, sir? Yes, it does. There was a, uh, a structure of the battlefield that went from deep to close to rear, and and there was equal emphasis on on each of those. Now the new emphasis was uh, in the in the deep area. The field artillery school at the time, now the fire center, had done a lot of preliminary work on interdiction of follow-on echelons. They had done some really good case studies and had come up with some mathematical solutions to how you would break up an echelon attack with fires in the deep area. That was the novelty, but the um, the main battle area was of equal importance. And I will say that in the main battle area, airland battle went back to some familiar touchstones that the Army had had in the past uh, and brought things back like counter, big counterattacks that active defense had uh, removed from consideration. Similarly, we put a lot of emphasis on the rear area. It's interesting. When I first, my first assignment in USER, uh the first time I went to Hohenfels, one of the first operations we did was break out from encirclement. So the battalion went out into the middle of the box, basically we had a perimeter and had to figure out how to break out from encirclement. Um, after the 86 edition, going back there as a captain, um, the exercise, at normally at some point, you would have to do a road march around Hohenfels four or five times, a hot refuel, and then do a attack, a hasty attack from the march. And so that more offensive um, type of scenario uh, was being embedded into it and in, in the thought process. Circling back to uh, General Holder's comment about the uh, battlefield framework, uh, one of our, uh, and I don't want to jump ahead, but one of our biggest challenges today with uh, our operational framework, the, the goodness of what was in airland battle was there was a designated, in, in our doctrine, there was a designated command and control headquarters 
for each of those areas. Uh, the uh, Corps Artillery or Devardi Headquarters uh, was responsible for the deep. The, uh, uh, whoever was assigned the area of operations would be responsible for the close. And there were structures, there were multiple structures in the rear area that were responsible for conducting those activities. And uh, today, that is a much less clearly defined uh, a distribution of responsibilities, and that challenges us today. But I think it was actually clearer uh, in, in the airland battle times. I'm curious, sir, when the conceptual shift began, what was the level of general officer involvement? There was great senior leader involvement in, in writing uh, airland battle but it was distinctly not done by committee. What I remember very vividly from, uh, from that experience was General Starry had a hand on it, and he had a, a core of officers that he trusted to review that. He certainly put the, the drafts out for everyone's review, and he took account of what branch chiefs and other general officers had to say. But his personal involvement, he was reading draft chapters of the 82 version as they were being written and his protection of his own ideas and the ideas that we were developing in, in uh, airland battle was just as important. He didn't let the committees and councils of colonels and generals change things or reduce it to, a, to an easy average. Now, Mr. Ben, from a doctrinal perspective, making a conceptual shift is not easy. What do you remember about this period in doctrine? In, in my mind, this was a golden age of, of doctrine. Uh, prior to 1982, I think we did so many things repetitively that people relied less on reading and understanding and studying doctrine. And uh, 82 was the wake-up call that much had changed. And by, by the time we refined Airland Battle uh, in 1986, People really began to say, I don't care how many assignments I've had to Fulda, what we're doing is now different. And I, I'm going to have to uh, uh, apply some intellectual rigor to understanding how to fight this airland battle doctrine. So in my mind, it was sort of a, a golden age. And, and you're right, the, uh, uh, the joint community, it, people sometimes think that uh, it's, it's a novelty that the Army has led the joint community, but uh, for a long time, uh, the Army has codified thinking about operations uh, in advance of the joint community. I think we were, this was a case where we were. In those years, yeah, General Starry and, and his uh, closest allies also worked really hard with the Air Force to make it airland battle. The Air Force was very suspicious of that term. They thought the Army was trying to dragoon them into some uh, arrangement they didn't, didn't uh, care for, and in fact that might have been the case. The Army uh, wanted the, the uh, advantages of air support to its, uh, to its operations. And uh, JC, Joint Suppression of Enemy Air Defenses, was one thing that we did work on in great, in great detail because supporting counterattacks into the enemy territory meant suppressing enemy air defenses in order to uh, to bring air platforms into the into the fight but we did not have a systematic uh, joint effort to to build joint doctrine in that time and because we did not the army reached into what would have been joint territory like our definition of operational level of war that's not a service idea that requires joint implementation but uh, the army was willing in those years to uh, to write that down and see how they would float with the other, other services. And in fact, they influenced the, the uh, joint definitions of that. Ultimately, the joint uh, manuals followed the Army manuals in the operational level of war and in, and in some other things as well. You know, th there was a recognition that there needed to be closer uh, integration, at least between the Air Force and the Army. Uh, just prior to that, in, I think it was 1979, uh, what we now know as the Airland Sea Application Center, ALSA. ALSA stood up uh, with, initially with just Army and Air Force uh, 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 soldiers assigned to it to address some of the problems of this integration of Army and Air Force uh, operations. And so as, as Airland Battle matured, I think the, the ideas, the, the uh, uh, framework of 
air interdiction, battlefield air interdiction, and, and close air support uh, uh, really uh, uh, took hold and became part of Air Force lexicon as well. That's right. And in a sense, we were looking back when we did that. We talk about airland battle as a you know, a, a, an advanced uh, version of, of Army doctrine, and it was. But it, it equally drew a lot of things from the past. And if you look at the Army and the Army Air Corps' experience in World War II, that mutual support, ground and air, was very characteristic of the American way of fighting. And that joint term, air lands, where we invent a word with a capitalization in the middle, I mean, that, uh, even today, students have a hard time with that and just but, but, but it but got to, us. It got us mentioned in in Time Magazine. That spelling of airland in battle well, got it us. It gets your attention. Yes. It is so non-grammatically correct. I guess uh, yeah, I fought that as hard as I could. Uh, <laughs> I, th I think General Otis, General Otis was the trade op commander who finally embedded that in the doctrine. And we're sitting down here at Leavenworth writing the doctrine, saying this is not grammatically correct. This is not good English. <laughs> and. Uh, so we got the word from Tradoc that, yeah, but you're going to use it. You're going to put it in the manual. <laughs> so we amended the draft. I think we had it in the draft five times, six times, and uh, Fort Monroe came back and said, you don't understand. This is going to be used throughout the manual, and it was. Now, sir, airland battle was a threat-based concept. Can you describe that threat we faced? This really goes back to active defense when we began to look hard at how the Warsaw Pact would organize its attack, and that's also an application of that doctrine, we found that we had some shortcomings. We weren't going to handle it well. But we began that analysis. The MI uh, school and uh, uh, some of our concepts development agencies looked at great detail, in great detail, at how the Russians proposed to attack. And it was a, um, it was another expression of combined arms, air ground tactics. They uh, uh, had, a, had a bigger force. They had a, a first tactical echelon, a second tactical echelon, then a second operational echelon, and it was built to keep hard pressure on a defense until a breakthrough was achieved. That remained the problem in Europe uh, as we changed doctrine, as we went to active, sorry, airland battle and decided that was a better approach to the, uh, to the problem. But airland battle, as, as Marcus said, did not exclusively concern itself with defense in Europe. That was the major case but it was doctrine for other theaters and also for offensive operations as well as defense. Certainly it took account of Soviet echelonment and in later encounters with the Warsaw Pact veterans, uh, I learned that uh, they were absolutely rigorous about that. That's Our appreciation was, was correct in how they were gonna go about their attack in echelon. General Starry, I think in one of his papers wrote that it's, it's mass momentum and continuous land battle was the, the hallmarks um, and it's somehow to, to break that momentum, you know, to, to give you enough chance to get your balance back and be able to fight that first echelon again. And our, our offensive doctrine is not that different in its objectives, but of course we have to do it very differently because we don't have the same mass that the uh, Warsaw Pact did. What I found interesting, and I was, I was looking at General Starry's press on as uh, getting ready for this, and, and He's talking about, and going back to those lessons of the 73 war, uh, things like going from a five-tank platoon down to either a four- or three-tank platoon based on the Israeli lessons and, and conversations with the West Germans because they said a lieutenant just couldn't control that many forces in the high-intensity type of battle. And then, of course, in the mid-early 1980s, we start changing the organizations to be able to execute the doctrine better to break up the 17 tank tank companies down to four tank companies instead of three, um, having a, a, a company you could basically have reserve. Um, I mean, we're making the, the execution of this more logical through the organizational. Um, one of the lines I found in the 86th edition, which I thought was very interesting, it says, talking about the doctrine that 86 is, this is the professional self-education in the science and art of war which I think a lot of times students can't forget that that's what the manual is supposed to be. It's not rule set, but it's your own professional self-education. But the, the doctrinal pieces of how that drove then organizational change, because um, you know, we tend to, and again, going back to what I teach at CGSC, uh, we tend to talk about the big five weapon systems. You know, those are fiscal year 76 is where AUSA is talking about the big five. 
and they're talking about the requirements, which has nothing to do with airline battle. It has everything to do with active defense. Uh, and they're looking at all those new weapon systems and the requirements for the Army coming out of Vietnam. Um, they work really well for airline battle, but it's because of the operational concept um, that, that you're able to put those against. The, the technological deficiencies that existed, that, that led to the development of the Big Five, they existed long before airland battle. Uh, we were, you know, scientifically and technologically headed in that direction. You know, my personal background, uh, you know, the, uh, the Cobra was single engine and, and limited, uh, relatively limited firepower uh, compared to the technology that was coming of age. The UH-1, single engine, uh, limited capacity. So, so you're right, the, the big five were certainly critical to the execution of air land battle, but, the, but they were not influenced. Uh, the, 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 uh, the opposite was true. But it's interesting because most of those big five are actually failed weapon systems and it's the replacements. It's not the MBT-70, it's the XM-1. It's, it's not the H-64, it was the Cheyenne that gets canceled. Um, it, it's those cancellations that lead to the right, a better weapon system to be able to execute the doctrine. But, I, and the reason I bring it up is because I think there's always this argument between technology and doctrine. And I'm always on the side that the doctrine has to come first. You have to figure out what you're going to do. And then you see what things are out there that help you do it better and not the other way around. You don't get something and then go, how do I use this? And that just kind of makes a discombobulated thought process. And that's one thing I would say, 82 and 86 edition, it's thought through all the way through what we want to do to the enemy. And then it's, how do, what do we need to be able to do that? And a lot of this, a lot of the concepts that are being done there, we can't do when the doctrine comes out. We have to develop the systems, the, the organizations, uh, and the, uh, the equipment to be able to execute it like we want to by right. 1991. Right. And some of that uh, de depended or counted on emergent technology. The standoff target acquisition system of the time was a brand new thing. This was a platform that was going to allow us to see the enemy in depth, and we were coming up with uh, strike systems, rockets and missiles, that would also be much more effective in greater depth. Those were not available to the Army, at the time, Airland Battle Doctrine was written, but the Doctrine writers took into account the fact that they were coming and that concept helped uh, the Army decide how to employ those things. How did the 86 version differ from the 82 version? The 86 version uh, was specifically written to better elaborate our discussion of operational level of war. Uh, operational level of war had been forced into the 82 manual very late by the Des Do Deputy Chief of Staff of Doctrine at uh, TRADOC. We, who were writing the manual, didn't want to put it in. We, were, we had a lot of new ideas that were going to go to the field. Uh, we were just about done, and we thought that we could put off the operational uh, art, until, sorry, the operational level of war until perhaps the next version. We got the word back, no, do it, and do it now. And so I, I got to write a short section on the operational level of war for the 82 version. That drew some criticism because it tended to equate the operational level of war with large unit operations, which is not an exact fit. So Huba Vastasega, when he was uh, running the School of Advanced Military Studies, uh, convinced the TRADOC commander that we should break the usual cycle of rewrites and rewrite airland battle more quickly than we had in the past. And he brought me back to Leavenworth as a uh, war college fellow in SAMS to do that project. So the big difference was how we explained operational level of war. But we took that opportunity also to improve other discussions of tactical subjects, and there's a stronger treatment of um, strategic relationships and Army operations, subordination to strategy in that 86 version as well. Sir, can I ask you a question? Between 1980, you came here, and you worked on the 82 edition. Where did you go? Before you came back in 1985, what assignment did you have? I was a squadron commander in the 3rd ACR. And the reason I ask that question is the same way that General Starry left from armor school, went to 5th Corps, and then pushes airline battle. What did you learn 
from the 1982 edition that influenced the 1986 edition? I had a lot of the ideas just confirmed to me. The, the fact that, that maneuver warfare was an important thing and that uh, you could succeed through attack, you could not, not succeed if you were entirely passive, that our ability to reach deep and influence uh, an oncoming enemy was improving. And uh, I also deployed the squadron to Europe twice from uh, CONUS, so I got a better understanding of, uh, of how we'd integrate forces on the fly as, as we mobilized. You know, lurking in the background of all of this uh, was our experience in Granada leading to the Goldwater-Nichols Act and all of the changes that that brought our mandate to follow joint doctrine so, so well, while the 86 version uh, of 100-5 uh, was under development, all of these things, uh, I think, maybe not have been conscious influences, but they certainly, I think, factored into some of the thinking that, uh, would that be fair to say? Yes, me? absolutely. I do have one other question for you, sir, about the 82 edition to the 86 edition. 82 edition, the chapter on offense has the example of Grant Fixburg. Right. Uh, defense has uh, Hindenburg and Ludendorff at Denver. Yeah. Those historical examples, uh, there, the the cultural literacy, if you will, of the officer corps. The eighty six edition has much more history embedded into it throughout there. Uh, what was the the driving factor? What was the army trying to do? Or? You know, I think we just saw the opportunity to to uh, use history as case you know, to illustrate our points a little bit better. I worked on both of those manuals, and I was the guy who put those two big examples in, in the 82 uh, version. But I'd come from the history department at West Point as an earlier assignment, so uh, yeah, we just got, I think we just got better at expression and a little um, more willing to use historical examples as uh, illustration. I mean, I think as a shorthand of understanding what a, what you're trying to show, having that historical example was a, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good shorthand, as you yeah. say, and there's pitfalls, too, because you can't dig in in depth without discovering some discrepancies and, and uh, things. But, you know, history is the case law for the military. It's what people have actually done and how you know that certain things are possible. Sir, tough question. Were there any shortcomings in the 1986 version? No, of course not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, uh, we, you know, the 86 version, as Jim was saying, it was published just as Goldwater Nichols was coming into effect. So it captured, it captured joint operations as best it could for the time. But actually, it was a pretty good manual. Uh, you know, I wound up leading a, a formation in, in Desert Storm, and we used, we used the offensive doctrine of airland battle. The whole army had been trained in the offensive doctrine of airland battle uh, at that time. So, uh, you know, all doctrine is an approach. It's the business, as Michael Howard said, of not being too far wrong. A peacetime army has got to be in the, in the vicinity of what's right when it starts fighting. And the 86 version, I believe, was a fair approximation of what combat was going to be like. Uh, Just Cause demonstrated that as much as Desert Storm. Sir, as we write doctrine today, we get a lot of input, as we should, from around the force. There's, there's dialogue, there's debate, and sometimes during that process, a narrative or a false narrative about the doctrine begins to appear. Did you ever run into that problem? Yeah, yeah. And Airland Battle was not so bad because it was well written. We had an editor uh, on the on the team, but uh, uh, active defense fell victim to that a lot, a whole lot. That's how we got to the calculus of battle, I think, and the whole business about you do your counting of systems on the on the field. Yeah, once, once uh, you know, the wrong thing gets said. Uh, active, I mean, uh, Airland Battle had that problem with center of gravity, mm. another great, no, it's, yeah, Clausewitzian term, that we should have not put that in the manual because it just distracted people for years. It does. Now you hear platoon leaders say about their center of gravity. And it's like, she, no. and the center of gravity is the machine. <laughs> <laughs> I have to always kind of go back to, because they just translated the... Um, the 1796 campaign of the history Clausewitz did, where he first starts talking about that, where a single center of gravity in a theater, that's it. 
Now, that's not joint doctrine, but it's, a, it's what Clausewitz, when he came up with a single center of gravity come, develops in the theater. Um, well, the, the Erland battle uh, doctrine did draw a lot from Clausewitz because the, that translation was, was new in the field and a lot of guys had, had read it, but there's also Jomini in there and there's oh, yeah. Ardant de Peak because of uh, General Cavassus and even a little bit of Mao. Um, what do we get wrong with center of gravity? We have multiple centers of gravity. If you go back to Clausewitz, with Clausewitz, you know, Clausewitz is a historian. He's looking at history, coming up with him with theory uh, based on it. He says in the theater you have one. Okay? Central hub, <clears throat> central hub of all power. Which, if you think about it, we then t want to do a Jominian thing and attack it, which means you're attacking the the strength, which is not what our doctrine says. We're supposed to attack the weakness, but. We, you can work your way through there. And what has ended up happening is, and I think part of it is, you know, everybody wants to have their own center of gravity. So at every level of command, they talk about it. And, and if there's only one, every action should work towards it. Um, the Desert Storm example, the Republican Guard, is that everything else going on in theater is getting you to destroying the Republican Guards. You know, so if it's not supporting that, it's, it's not supporting the center of gravity but we tend to hear a lot of people come through with all these different levels and I don't know if it's a if it's a low intensity um, type of thing where you know each company commander wants to have his own center of gravity in this province or whatever but um, I, I think that's a it's a, a trait uh, uh, yesterday we spoke to the cog and the decog from JRTC they were here and their comment on the draft FM 30 is that we don't explain enough uh, what the battalion commander, company commander, and platoon leader contribution to multi-domain operations is going to be. Uh, that, that was that was their observation, you know. We, and and so we're struggling with with it down there at JRTC because you know we do brigades, and they said brig brigades are never going to to do offensive cyber operations. And we said, yeah, true statement. Yeah. Said true statement right now, but that's a permissions. That that that's a a, a result of current permissions. And it'll influence your environment, whether you're running exactly. it or not. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. That's what we tried tried to say. If you're not doing offensive cyber ops, you have to know what's happening in the cyberspace if you're going to not be victimized by it. But uh, uh, so yes. But everyone wants to know, down to team leader, uh, what, where, you know, what, where, where, where do I fit in? What's my contribution to? But FM3 is the capstone, you know, and it, those implementing manuals are important. Yes, we, we found it useful in, in the first time we did Air on Battle to put an annex at the back of the book that said, you know, here's what division, brigade, battalion, <clears throat> company do. That's what they do. But that's not to say that this manual tells you how to run a company. Right. Uh, that's just how they function in the Army's combat. Sir, on the, um, the advertising, if you will, or the, the, the rollout of the new doctrine, because what I remember is young officer um, articles in Military Review, yep. Armor Magazine, yep. Yep. all that stuff. How was that managed? How was that? It was managed deliberately by General Richardson here at, at Leavenworth. Um, Tradoc Commander got involved in it, too. He published. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there was a... A deliberate effort to explain what was coming, and we did it in '82. Uh, there was an article; I wrote a whole bunch of articles, and so did Huba, explaining aspects of it. And, and General Richardson signed one of those on the extended battle. And Clyde Tate, who was the head of the Department of Tactics, uh, signed one with me on on defense. So we wrote a bunch of articles, and then General Story thought it important to put that team in the field to go around and explain to everybody what we meant by deep attack. Because I just found, um, and again, it goes back to working on my book right now, because um, Tank Battalion 1987-88 did not understand the doctrine very well. Right. Went out to Hohenfels, did not do well. And then the S3, got him Kevin Campbell, large number of LPDs, sand tables, yeah. OPDs, all that stuff to understand the doctrine. And Teaching then the, what though, brigade operations or? No, mostly battalion, battalion uh, okay, stuff, yeah. but 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 yeah. trying to understand, yeah. uh, and it was really a change of focus and the missions, yeah. 
um, much more of the offensive type, hasty attack, movement of contacts, those type of things. And by the time of 90, going to Hohenfels, the Italian performed much, much better. Uh, but it was that forcing function that the Capstone Doctrine sure. kind of said, here's, here's the things you're going to do to do there. What are those metal tasks that have to support it? Um, and that's the education piece that it was. Yeah, and then the, and the maneuver center and the fire center and all those guys implement or put the stuff in there. But, yeah, that's, that's the proper. But I think until then, and it goes back to your comment about the CTCs, Jim, and it, the, the wake-up calls of that, of sitting there, you know, with all your lights blinking, going, oh, crap. <laughs> that was that was painful. Yes, yes. <laughs> I remember sitting at the yes. NTC one time. I was the first lieutenant with a the talk hidden up a little wadi and just watching like 180 vehicles drive by us, going, "Oh crap! I hope they don't turn." Um, <laughs> I remember being out there when I was a division G3, and and uh, the battalion. You remember Afghanistan? What they called Afghanistan, that high land there in the uh, center of the training area. Anyway, the battalion put together a pretty good defense. The brigade put together a pretty good defense. The op forward slipped south and were taking a chance. They ran up a, uh, a, a defile to, to turn the flank of that brigade. And the brigade commander, the scouts picked it up, and they just poured the cast onto that op forward column. And the, and the exercise control guy said, yeah, that didn't happen. We're teaching Army units to fight, so we're not going to let them win this fight with air. God damn, that's exactly wrong. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So how you train, yeah, matters, too. I have to confess, uh, I was introduced to Airland Battle Doctrine, uh, or the Airland Battle concept, in a 1982 version of Soldiers Magazine. And in that magazine, sadly, the cover was astronaut Bob Stewart, who had just taken, uh, first Army astronaut, taken his walk with his back backpack, with his... Uh, you know, a Buck Rogers backpack, and uh, so, but but we we got second, we got we got second billing uh, with the Airland Battle Doctrine. But I remember that that version of Soldiers Magazine, and that went everywhere. Everybody got yes. Soldiers Magazine. Exactly, yeah. exactly. We've touched on it a little bit, so now I think we should get into the real world application of doctrine, specifically Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm, Mr. Ben. What are your thoughts? Well, that was the graduation exercise, I think, for Airland Battle. Uh, it, it validated uh, uh, not just the doctrine, but you know our training philosophy, uh, uh, unit commanders. Because I, I was in, in the corps headquarters, uh, I can't tell you how many unit commanders would come through the corps headquarters saying that our training at the NTC was tougher than this. Uh, sir, that's a great point because you know. American doctrine is not prescriptive. It's, it's never been prescriptive. It doesn't tell commanders what to do, but establishes a baseline, and it did that. We had the same vocabulary. We had the same catalog of, of ideas, and we had similar training across the force, whether you were CONUS or Europe. And that all goes back to General DePew's institution of TRADOC, where he moved on all of those axes at once, force development, equipment development, training. He had a genius in, uh, in his training development program, General Paul Gorman, uh, and that was the basis of, of all, that continued from active defense through uh, airland battle and, um, and, and made us much stronger. Yeah, I was just going to say, my experience Desert Storm, I was a company commander uh, in First Armor Division um, and uh, on the 27th, fighting at Medina Ridge, and it was fascinating to watch um, really kind of Airland battle and operation because we have the direct fight going on. Uh, we had Apaches sitting over the top of our tanks firing. Um, well, at the same time, artillery is going deep. Well, at the same time, F-16s are saying there's another brigade back here and they're hitting um, these vehicles in Awadi. And so this attacking this depth as we're going in and, you know, as a company commander, listening to all this and understanding, okay, I'm fighting this fight here, but tomorrow this other brigade's here and it's being hit by somebody else and attrited and it was kind of a, a an interesting unifying piece to understand what we we're doing and everything was working towards that same goal 73 easting worked the same way there's a, a lot of detail known about the contact fight the force on force fight which was the essence of that fight but there was there were operations on in depth at the same time to prevent the republican guard from uh, moving out of Kuwait 
uh, unaffected. So, um, yeah, we had a basic set of understandings that everybody proceeded from, and I think that's about the best peacetime doctrine can do for a force that's going to fight. The uh, uh, startling thing for me uh, coming out of Desert Storm was uh, how Air Force, uh, how air power, uh, the availability of air power was the real uh, uh, startling thing for me. Prior to Desert Storm, and all of our training and all of our what, what passed for simulation at that time, uh, it was all based upon the notion that air power would not be available when we needed it. That uh, there, there's a, a, a decision, the doctrinal decision, on how much air power is committed to air interdiction, battlefield air interdiction, and close air support. That apportionment decision, we said, would always leave the Army uh, uh, out in the cold when it came to the availability uh, of airframes for close air support. So in our training, we never counted on the Air Force to be there. And yet in Desert Storm, uh, what we found for the first time, at least in, 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 my, in, in my professional uh, life, what we saw was there were airframes circling overhead looking for targets. They were waiting for uh, you know, the process to identify targets as, uh, for them to engage. And so our thinking of, oh, wait a minute, the Air Force is there and, and they, they are able uh, to solve some problems for us. So that was kind of the, an epiphany for me uh, at the time. And those, and those flights could talk to ground troops too, which I don't think we have provided for under you know, the earlier, earlier doctrine, though it, it goes back to World War II when uh, General Pete Casada's Air Force supported General Bradley's army. And you were at Corps headquarters during this? So you remember his operation? Absolutely, yes, absolutely. When uh, General Schwarzkopf called uh, called you the Second Armored Cavalry Division, and, and <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, that was the the big left hook. That was. And Dr. Gerges, you were right next to him, right? We were the left left side left of that side, left yeah. hook. Yeah. Well, he was a covering force. Yeah, the regiment initially. started as a covering force with the first and third armor. I just did this down at Dean Whiskey's uh, scholars thing. We started out as a covering force ahead of the third armor division, the first armor division. The third, first armor division wheeled out to our left as we all turned northeast and, and proceeded in a zone of their own while third armor continued to follow us. And we all lined up abreast uh, out, out around the seven zeros. Up. up. 1,200 tanks and five, 600 Bradleys in line. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Powerful stuff, man. Uh, it would have been amazing if you could have looked from the air, because it would have been looking left and right. You would have seen, you know, 1,200 vehicles. And that's what General Franks was trying to obtain. You know, he wanted to make the, the fist of the Corps and strike the Republican Guard with a concentrated force of four divisions. And, of course, General Schwarzkopf was on his back about uh, getting, getting the hell up there. Nobody had said it was going to be a 100-hour operation. General Franks did what he said he would. He brought all those divisions. Well, that goes back to my comment about that 2nd Brigade. When fought at Medina Ridge, and we were fighting direct fight, we thought there was another brigade about 20 or 30 kilometers behind that. And we, night of the 27th, we thought as soon as we got fuel, we were heading for, towards it. We had no idea there was a ceasefire coming. And It's amazing to think about this as being the first time we use GPS, and we just don't think about its importance. And the Iraqis didn't have it, so they were looking down the roads for us or along the ridges, whatever the physical features were out there, yeah, ridges that, and something. Yeah. But they, we'd come right out of the desert at them, they had no idea we were. But like in a task force level, we had two. Two of them, one had been in the uh, mortar platoon, and it was one of the army pluggers that you had to, oh, to yeah. just do the, the thing. And then the other one was a Magellan that was commercial that showed up three days before the ground war. In so. what unit? First Armored, 270. I mean, company, company was two? No, no, sir. Entire 2nd Battalion, 70th Armor. Oh. Had two. Now we had Loran's, one yeah. per platoon. Oh, okay. But um, GPS's, we only had two. Sir, as the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate finishes up the new operations manual, FM30, what's your advice on the new publication? I'd say don't discount or underrate the human element. Of war. The moral element's very important. We made that mistake in the 76th doctrine. But the spirit of the soldier, his level of training, 
the uh, value of uh, intangible effects on the battlefield, shock effect, momentum, uh, the habit of winning day after day, are hard to quantify but are very important and ought to be in our doctrine. And if I may add about that, um, one of the things that's fascinating to me is, is Clausewitz is quoted um, in both, I think, 82 and, and definitely in the 86th edition because of those human intangibles, um, the nature of war, the fog, the friction, the, the bloody, all those things. And even though we've talked a lot about technology, we've talked about organizations, that human aspect of war, um, it comes through very clearly. And I remember as a young lieutenant, um, the push in professional journals across the Army, Armor Journal entry about, um, I mean, readings about Clausewitz, um, uh, I found in my papers one day, um, something that had come out in like 1985 that was given out the basic course on Clausewitz Condensed. It had been from the Congressional Record Office, and it was on war. It's terrible. I, I, I look at it now, and it was not helpful. But it was the attempt to get officers and using, again, this self-education piece to understand that um, despite all the tools and that stuff, it's a human aspect. It's going to be confusing. It's going to be bloody. And to prepare that way um, during peacetime. You know, we added uh, to our discussion of multi-domain operations, we added the dimensions, the human information and, uh, and physical. And uh, a couple of things that uh, Mr. Creed has started, has begun to say, is that there are only two impacts uh, out of operations. And they're either cognitive or physical. Or all results are either cognitive or physical. And so we, we, tr we hope that adding that human information and physical dimensions to our uh, you know, operational, our understanding of the operational environment. We hope that that message comes through. But my biggest fear about the, the new FM3O is that there, there is much of it that is nuanced. And it takes more than a casual read, to, it will take more than a casual read to understand and appreciate it. And that's, I think, going to challenge the force. The way I, I express it is that Operations in multiple domains is not multi-domain operations. And, and as nuanced as that, that statement is, we hear a lot, if air land battle wasn't multi-domain operations, what is it? Well, what was it? And so th there is a difference in what we envision multi-domain operations to be. And I have to use that word envision because we haven't done it yet. But uh, what we envision it to be is an evolution of the airland battle doctrine. And I hope that we, we won't get it right the first time, but just like the difference between 1982 and 1986, perhaps the next version of FM of 3.0 We'll, we'll, uh, we'll get it closer to right. Well, gentlemen, I think that wraps it up. But is there anything else that you would like to add, sir? Let, uh, let sir? me add a couple of footnote points. You may not want to put this directly, but uh, for, for your consideration, also important in our new doctrine is a clear expression of the concept of, of operation. You've got to have a very clear, short presentation of what's the central idea of the Army, uh, Army operational concept. Uh, it was the one thing that Airland Battle did pretty well in both editions, I think, when it stated that the purpose of all operations is to throw the enemy off balance with a powerful blow from an unexpected direction and follow up to prevent his recovery. That's simple, it's uh, coherent, and everybody can line up on it whether you're attacking or defending. Secondly, the implementation of the doctrine by supporting manuals or supp uh, supplementary manuals is imp important too. Those have got to pick up the main ideas and express them accurately. Uh, that was a big problem for active defense. Active defense itself did the things that we discussed, but the, uh, the calculus of battle and all the numerology and addition and subtraction was really put in by implementing manuals, not by the capstone manuals itself. So how it's implemented in the subordinate manual. I think what you do is really important. I mean, we, we've got the the proof multiple wars, you know, how the, how the Army visualizes 
the next fight is important. Our picture of what the challenge is determines how we're going to organize, train, recruit our leaders, assign them, all of that stuff, and motivate our soldiers. On that note, I think we'll wrap things up. Thank you for joining me today. I'd also like to thank our listeners and note that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast don't necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, or the Combined Arms Center. I'm Captain Wyatt Harper, and this is Breaking Doctrine.